Welcome to another episode of Mike's Money Picks. Today on the podcast, we're going to be breaking down the Friday, March 24th slate of college basketball at the FS4. FanDuel and DraftKings talking about the Sweet 16 second day of the NCAA tournament. Recording this podcast a little bit later tonight than I was expecting to. Uh, just kind of had to stay up and watch the end of the Gonzaga-UCLA game. Like That game was an instant classic. Uh, we also had an instant classic in the form of Kansas State-Michigan State. Uh, and you know, kind of looking at it tonight, if you had lineups that were able to get to both Marquise Noel and Drew Timmy, you probably had a lot of success. Me personally, wasn't a great night. There were a lot of landmines out there tonight, and I just couldn't seem to avoid them. Whether it was Rasir Bolton or Devo Davis or Matty Sissoko, uh, just seeming like every good lineup that I had got taken down by you know one guy that just gave a dud performance. And this was a night where, with how big the Kansas State and uh, Michigan State game went, and how big the Gonzaga UCLA game went, you could not afford to have a landmine in your lineup if you wanted to cash or if you wanted to come home with a big payday. So. A bit of an unfortunate slate, but we're going to be back at it Friday um, trying to, you know, get back. So we will be here on the podcast for the Saturday and the Sunday Elite Eight slates as well. They're going to be a little smaller slates, so they'll be a little bit shorter episodes, but I will still be dropping them Friday night and Saturday night. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so that way you'll be notified when new episodes drop. And while you're here, please rate and review. These March Madness episodes have been my most listened to episodes of the year so far. Um, so please do me a favor. If you like what you're listening to, if I've helped you out any at all, please rate and review the podcast. I promise it really does help me out. I really do appreciate it. All right, so enough with the introduction. We got four games we got to talk about. So we're going to go kind of in order of start time, breaking it up by the early games and the late games. That way, if you are playing the late slate on DraftKings, you can just skip ahead to that part of the podcast. Timestamp will be in the description. All right, enough with the introduction. Let's start with the uh, Alabama and San Diego State game. But first, let's get a quick word from our friends at Spotify. All right, the first game of the night is San Diego State taking on Alabama from the KFC Yum Center in Louisville. Quite an interesting host for a regional. But anyway, uh, so we've got this matchup, and it is a kind of a contrasting in styles. you got San Diego State, who just really slows the game down. you got Alabama, who wants to try to speed it up. Uh, Kent Palm has this one as Alabama 72-66, to which checks in as the lowest total of the night. And hey, I kind of get it. San Diego State, like we said, they like to slow the game down. They're 263rd in the nation in adjusted tempo, according to Kent Palm. And they're also fifth in defensive efficiency. So they're going to slow you down and they're going to guard you well. Alabama is fifth in the nation in tempo, which kind of bodes well for getting more possessions, but they're also third in defensive efficiency. So you're kind of looking at a combination of things here that you're going to produce a low scoring game. There might be a higher number of possessions than San Diego State is loose to, but that doesn't mean they're going to score on all of them. Now, Personally, I think San Diego State's a very difficult team to play guys for in DFS. They have nine guys that play over 15 minutes a game, and none of them play over 30 minutes a game. And they tend to be super balanced scoring. Like, you never really see these monster games from a San Diego State Aztec. It's just kind of how it works out. Now, if there was going to be a guy that had a monster game, it'd probably be Matt Bradley. He is the team leader in usage rate and shot rate, and he's their most expensive player on this Friday night slate at $5,900 on DraftKings. Now, there's a pretty good reason why. Like he has been their shot leader for the season and he's taken 39 shots in their last three games. Now, granted, he's only made 16 of them. That's not very efficient, but if you're looking at his price tag, $5,900, and you're getting a guy who's averaging about 13 shots a game, and you're probably going to get a few additional possessions because of the Alabama tempo, I definitely think that's not a bad value play for Matt Bradley. He's not my favorite play on the night, but he's definitely a guy who has some legitimate upside. 
Lamont Butler is next up in pricing for the Aztecs. And I think this notable, he has the highest assist rate on the team. Uh, and he's attempted 15 field goals total in the NCAA tournament. But he's actually hit value pretty well, especially in the Furman game. And he has a good chance to hit that value because of those peripherals, like we mentioned with the assist rate. And he's not afraid to go down there and get boards as well. So a guy like Lamont Butler with the possessions going up, I definitely think he has a really good chance of hitting value. And I definitely wouldn't mind him in my lineups. Now, San Diego State's big man, Jaden Ledee, has had two straight games of five times value before disappointing in the second round game versus Foreman with only 12 fantasy points. And look, he was a guy that I was kind of excited about because of the matchup versus Furman, but it just didn't really pan out. He comes off the bench for San Diego State, and he is second in usage on the team. So like generally when he comes in, they kind of look to feed him and get him involved and get him the ball. And that really wasn't the case against Furman. And the bottom line is he just doesn't play enough minutes to have any kind of high ceiling. And I really don't see this being a game where, you know, the Furman game, I thought he had a matchup advantage inside with his size and with his skill. And I don't see that being the case against Charles Bediaco for Alabama. So, you know, low minutes, you know, just not a good matchup. I, I just don't see this being a good Jaden Ledee game. Now, Nathan Mensah is the other guy seeing minutes at the center position for San Diego State. And to me, he also doesn't have enough minutes to give me any kind of legitimate upside. He also doesn't shoot the ball a lot at all. He has seven total field goal attempts in the last three games. Uh, so I'm kind of just out on the center position for San Diego State tomorrow night. Uh, if they burn me, they burn me. It's okay. I'm probably not going to be playing them. Darion Trammell is another guard for the Aztecs who did actually hit four times value against Furman. Uh, he is their second leading scorer on the season, second in shot rate behind Matt Bradley. Uh, the problem is with Trammell is that he's not very efficient. Uh, he's taken 23 shots in the last three games, and he's only made seven of them. And he shoots 35% on the season. So, you know, even when you make the sample size bigger, it's not a great percentage. Now, to me, the shot rate actually does give him a little bit of upside. He's certainly not consistent, certainly not anybody I would go to in any kind of cash game format. But hey, any guy that's going to be taking that amount of shots definitely warrants a little bit of consideration at his price tag. Now, the last Aztec that I would probably consider would be Micah Parrish. Uh, he had a five times value game against Furman, uh, and his rebound rates generally are pretty good. So you're looking at a guy that can get to value without shooting the ball a whole lot uh, because of how much and how well he rebounds. And in the Furman game, the reason why he got to five times value was because he did actually take 11 shots. And when you look back, every game where Micah Parrish has taken double digit shots, he's hit four times value. Uh, and so in a game where the possessions can increase and where you may see an Alabama defensive strategy, where they're trying to take the ball out of the hands of Matt Bradley and Darion Trammell. Actually, with Trammell's usage and percentage, maybe they want the ball in the hands of Darion Trammell. I don't know. But you might see some increased shots from Micah Parrish. And like I said, I really like the upside if he does get to that double-digit shot number. Adam Seiko is the last guy I'm going to mention. He is a pure punt play. Uh, he's going to see double-digit minutes, but he doesn't really do a whole lot when he's out there. He's kind of a cardio guy. Um, but, you know, if you're out there for enough minutes against Alabama, you're going to luck into some rebounds and some assists. So um, definitely a pure punt play, you know, definition of a punt play, but um, probably not a guy I'm going to need to play a whole lot. All right, now let's talk about Bama. So Brandon Miller is dealing with the groin injury, and their rotation for the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament and their usage dating back to even the final of the SEC tournament, has just been really cloudy and just really muddy, and it's really hard to predict on a game-to-game -game basis. Now, Brandon Miller, I think he is going to be pretty much full strength. Um, he was back to being like 
if not 100%, at least 90% against Maryland. He was their usage leader against Maryland, and he took 17 shots in that game. Uh, but the downside is, is that he only delivered seven rebounds, which is below his season average, and he did not record an assist in that game against Maryland. So he came through in that game with just a little over three times value. Um, I will probably not be getting to Brandon Miller. I just think there's other guys that I would rather spend up on personally for me. Um, but I definitely think that if he is healthy, which everything seems to indicate that he is, if not fully healthy, really close to fully healthy, he definitely has some upside, but I just, I don't know. I Nothing there indicates to me that this is a guy who can consistently get the four and five times value with that salary. Yes, the ceiling game is always a potential. He's shown us that, but I, I just, I'm not seeing any kind of consistency. And I really think there's other guys up there in that salary range that are better plays. Next up is Noah Clowney, and he's another guy for Bama that just does not appeal to me on this slate. He's only had one four times value game in his last five, and he hasn't had over a 15% usage rate in the month of March. That's quite a large sample size, and to not have that amount of usage is kind of alarming. Uh, and at that salary, I'm just out on Noah Clowney. Well, you would need a double-double for him to get value, and I'm not confident at this point that he's going to get you double digits in either statistic. Now, Javon Quinterly is a guy that I will probably get into in my lineups. He's averaging 12 shots per game in his last three games, and he's played over 31 minutes in three of his last four games. And I'll put a little asterisk on that. The one that he didn't was against the 16 seed Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So you got to figure if that game was ever in doubt, he was going to get the 31 minutes. Now, Quinterly has also been over 32 fantasy points in two of his last three, you know, with the 16 seed game, the exception. So you're looking at a guy that when he's played in competitive games recently, he's delivered you value. He's played a lot of minutes. He's delivering usage as the point guard for Alabama. I think that that Texas A&M Corpus Christi game is actually helping keep his price down. He will surely be popular with high ownership. People love to play Javon Quinterly no matter what salary he's at. Um, and so just know going in that he is one of the best plays tonight, but he is also going to come with ownership because I think everybody else also thinks he's one of the best plays tonight. Now, I also like Charles Bediaco for Bama, who has three really good games in his last three. He's had a four-times value game, a five-times value game, and then almost a six-times value game in his last three. He's averaging a 21% usage rate in those three games, and he's been at about 15% for the season. I don't know why the recent uptick in usage. Maybe it has to do with Brandon Miller. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But if he's going to continue seeing that high usage rate at 21%, he's definitely a guy that needs to be in your lineups. Mark Sears is a guy who is going the other direction, though. He's seeing his usage decline since Javon Quinterly's usage and minutes have risen. Uh, and so I'm probably between the two of them, I'm probably not getting to Mark Sears. However, I think he makes for a great leverage play. In the game where Quinterly didn't play a whole lot of minutes against Texas A&M Corpus Christi, Mark Sears did get to four times value in only 21 minutes and not a high usage rate. So I think Sears has a lot of upside as a contrarian play, specifically to Javon Quinterly. Um, but he's not a guy that I'm like locking into my lineup as a cash game play or even like for a single entry, in my opinion. I think he's more of a really big GPP type. Uh, I'm looking to gain leverage on the Quinterly people type of play. Now, I'm really not interested in any Bama player whose salary is below Mark Sears. Uh, there's a lot of guys for this team that are going to see minutes, but none of them are consistent. Uh, now, if there is a wild turn of events and Brandon Miller does not play, uh, and this is the first game of the night, so you would know this going into the slate, which would really be helpful. Um, Gurley and Pringle would be the beneficiaries, but like I said, I think Brandon Miller's close to full strength. I'm not preparing for that. All right, game two of the night from 
Kansas City is Miami versus Houston. Ken Palm has this one as Houston 75 to 67. This is a big tempo up game for Houston as Miami plays at the nation's 99th fastest tempo according to Ken Palm. Now the Houston defense is going to be a tough tough matchup for the Hurricanes. Houston is fourth in the nation in defensive efficiency per Ken Palm. So I kind of feel like with the Miami guys, you can't expect their normal point total. But the good news is DraftKings didn't give them their normal salaries. They all seem like they got a little bit of a price discount because of the matchup. We talked about this back in college football season where like anybody who played Alabama or Georgia got discounted in price. I feel like we're kind of getting the same type scenario here with Houston. I didn't know they got that much respect from DraftKings, but hey, I'll take it. I think the price drop actually makes their guys more appealing. Because when you look at the price drop, just judging for their current salary, uh, Norchad Omir has hit four times value for this current price. Again, for the current price, he's hit four times value in seven straight games that he finished, excluding the one that he left injured. Jordan Miller has accomplished four times value in five of his last six games. So what you're looking at is two guys that with their price dropping become instantly more appealing in my opinion. Now, to me also, Omir and Miller, they've been much maligned over the season because people think that Alabama or Miami, you can just play the post players against them and they're going to struggle. And it's kind of true, but it's kind of not. Like we have seen bigs dominate against Miami, but generally speaking, in those games, Omir and Miller tend to do well. You look at the games against teams that play two bigs and Omir and Miller, like, they do pretty well in those games, right? Now, I think it's because, you know, when teams try to use those mismatches, they're putting these guys in situations where they're on the ball and they're close to the basket, and so they're going to have an opportunity for a steal, block, or rebound every time it happens. And I think you just kind of, over the course of possession by possession, they're not going to score every time, and so you end up with a lot of rebounds. Now, I kind of expect Houston to try to do the same um, because Walker and Roberts are two pretty formidable bigs, but they're not like super scores like they're not like a drew timmy down there uh, and they won't have a height advantage either they stand at about six eight and miller and omir about six seven but they will have a you know a, a weight and a strength advantage and they can get a bucket out of the post um so i think jordan miller whichever one he guards he's going to be giving up 30 pounds at least to either of them um so i kind of think that you know, teams are going to, or Houston is going to try to go at Miller and Omir. And it's only, you know, if you want to play them, just know with that risk going in that they're probably going to be going after him, which means he's going to have plenty of opportunity, but it also means that he could get in foul trouble or he could get played off the floor. Now, let's talk about Wong and Pack for a second. I think it's going to be tough sledding for them on the other end of the floor, scoring for Isaiah Wong and Nigel Pack. Now, you know, Houston's guards are just great perimeter defenders and they bring a lot of on ball pressure. And so, you know, kind of what you're seeing there is I just don't think you can expect the same production out of them. But the good news is, is that their usage rates have been fairly consistent. Pax has been in the 18% to 22% range in the last six games. Wong's hasn't dropped below 20% in a game since Valentine's Day. Yeah, you remember Valentine's Day? It was a while ago. Now, to me, the silver lining for these two guys is that because of the ferocious on-ball defense that Houston plays and their emphasis on stopping the basketball and playing help defense, they actually give up a decent amount of assists. So you could see a good assist game out of an Isaiah Wong or a Nigel Pack or maybe even a Jordan Miller. Um, I actually think that this Miami team, because of the price drops they're getting, they're not a total stay away in my opinion. Now, also, we got to talk about Wugo Poplar because he is currently questionable. Apparently, Thursday was the first day that he practiced uh, and is now a game-time decision, whereas, you know, the whole week he had not practiced, which to me generally doesn't bode well when you don't practice the whole week. But, you know, him being able to practice Thursday means that there is a chance that he plays. If he is out of this game, Bensley Joseph immediately becomes one of the slate's best value plays. 
looking at it from a pure physical standpoint, Harlem Beverly actually like profiles more similarly to Wuga Poplar. But just looking at what's happened over the year, whenever one of these Miami starters is hurt, Larinaga just goes right to Bensley Joseph and just plugs him in and gives him the same minutes. And so, you know, you can look at Bensley Joseph's game log and you can figure out exactly where they were. He's hit four times value pretty much every time it's happened. And so I definitely think that if Wuga Poplar is out, go ahead and lock in Bensley Joseph. Uh, I know it's not the best matchup against Houston, but I think that he will still be able to hit four times value because of the minutes that he's going to see. Now, let's talk about the Houston side. So Houston is one of those teams where I'm not looking at anyone outside of their starting five um, for DraftKings purposes and FanDuel purposes, but the downside is, is that they've all been priced up. You know, we've been dealing with these Marcus Sasser and Jamal Shedd injuries, and everybody's kind of had a big game since then. And so the big game that they had has caused their price tag to rise. And now they're all kind of expensive. And so that makes it really tough to play them, even though Miami does give a juicy matchup with their lack of size down low and with their ability to push the tempo. Now let's talk about Sasser real quick. So Sasser was able to play through pain and put up 30 fantasy points against Auburn. I have no problem going back to him. He's one of the best players in college basketball. He's going to see a high usage rate. I can go on about Marcus Sasser. If he's fully healthy, he's playable. Now, Jawan Roberts and Jairus Walker, the two bigs that are going to see the plus matchup that is the Miami front court, right? I would tend to think that Jordan Miller guards Jawan Roberts, which is going to give him the size mismatch. And Roberts, when you look at it, he's been more productive than Walker over the last five. He's also had a higher ceiling in terms of fantasy points in those last five. However, Jairus Walker's usage is the one that kind of oscillates. And so he has shown a higher usage rate than um, Jawan Roberts, and it can happen on any given night. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So Walker may actually have the higher theoretical ceiling because he can get to a higher usage rate, and theoretically a higher usage rate will lead to higher fantasy points. And also, I kind of, I've said this multiple times on the podcast, trust talent. And so Walker is the guy that's going to be playing in the NBA. He's the guy that's likely to be a first-round pick. Um, and so I definitely wouldn't have a problem going to either of them in this um, particular instance. I think that Walker gives you a little higher ceiling. I think that Roberts gives you a little more safety. And I'm going to be honest though, I'm not stacking them together. Neither of the two of them have hit four times value together in a game in the last month and a half. So to me, that makes them unplayable together, unless you are just of the opinion that the I mean, front court is just so soft and bad at rebounding that they both can do it. And I don't think they're that good of a matchup for now Jamal Shedd and Tremont Mark I'm going to be honest I don't have any interest in playing them with a healthy Marcus Sasser both have really benefited from the usage without Sasser you know fully healthy um, and without Sasser in the lineup for a game or two and so I kind of just I'm not feeling it with the price tag they're currently at and the usage rates that they're going to see with Marcus Sasser all right so that does it for the two early games so let's take a quick breather and then let's talk about the nightcap All right, so the first game of the late night session is going to be Princeton versus Creighton. And I got to be honest, y'all, this kind of profiles as a weird game. Like, I'm going to kind of give you the projected score and, you know, talk about a few oddities uh, statistically of this game. So Ken Palm has this one as Creighton 75 to 66. That is the largest spread of the night. Uh, now, these teams are both in kind of the middle of the pack in terms of the nation, you know, in terms of tempo. So it's not really a pace-up game or a pace-down game for either of these two teams. And Princeton has a weird profile. They are statistically the worst defense of the night in terms of defensive efficiency. But they're also great at not giving up offensive rebounds. In fact, both of these teams are great at not giving up offensive rebounds. Both are top 15 in the country in this category. 
Now for Princeton, they've also done a really good job of limiting fast breaks, right? In both the tournament games, Arizona and Missouri have struggled to get out on the break, and Princeton has made it a priority to, like, not give up fast breaks. Like, they pretty much only crash one guy to the offensive boards. It's Caden Pierce, uh, and then everybody else is going to get back and prevent transition. So it just kind of creates a different type of game flow than most of the games that you're going to see. Now for Princeton's offense, everything runs through Tosan Awuma. Like I said, I don't know how, you know, I said this last episode, I don't know how you get a Wuma out of that, but, you know, that's what the announcers call him, so I'm going to call him a Wuma, all right? Now, he's been in between 29 and 35 fantasy points in each of his last four games, which gives you a solid floor along with a ceiling as well, and believe it or not, he actually had a season low in usage rate against Missouri. He still had 29 fantasy points. Now, if you've kind of got a number, like, in, in your head, in mind on what this season low usage rate was, it might shock you. It was 18% which is still pretty good. So if you're guaranteeing me that this guy's going to get 18% usage and he's going to get at least 29 fantasy points, like that's a very safe cash game play. I think he does have enough of a ceiling to give you, um, you know, a GPP upside, but he's definitely like a really solid cash game play. Now, personally, if I'm Princeton in this one, I'm going to try to play the matchup game and play a little chess here and make sure that Awuma is matched up at the four spot so that way he is not guarded by Ryan Kalkbrenner. I want him guarded by Baylor Shireman or Arthur Kaluma. Kalkbrenner's a guy that you don't want to go at. So uh, I think if they play a lot of minutes with him at the four, which they kind of do usually, um, then that sets up really well for Awuma here in this game. Now, Caden Pierce is next in pricing uh, for Princeton. And I got to be honest, he's a guy that I'm probably not getting to. He's a guy that I really appreciate watching. Like he's an all effort guy. He's a really smart rebounder. He's a really high IQ basketball player. He's the type of guy you want on your pickup basketball team, right? But he just has such low usage rates. And he's so dependent on rebounds to get the value that I just don't think he's going to get there. And and so he's not going to be in my lineups. And to me, Creighton is a tough team to get to value rebound against. We know they don't give up offensive boards. And, you know, when you look at Caden Pierce's game logs, his worst fantasy performances are when he doesn't get offensive boards. So why would we play a guy that needs offensive boards to hit value and is going up against a team that doesn't give him up? I, I just, he's not on my radar for this Friday night slate. Like I said, type of guy you want on your basketball team, but not in DFS purposes. Now, let's talk about the season-long metrics for Ryan Langborg and Matt Aloko because they're pretty similar. Like, they have similar usage rates, similar shot rates, similar three-point percentages, similar assist rates. They're pretty close. But recently, Langborg is seeing a little bit more work. He's gotten more shots. He's had 12 shots in each of the last three games. He's also shown a higher ceiling in terms of fantasy production. So Langborg and Aloko, they're both good players. They're both going to play a lot of minutes. They're both going to see a good amount of usage, but Langborg is the one who is trending upwards as opposed to Aloko. Now, Keyshawn Kelman is going to see a tough matchup down low against Ryan Kalkbrenner, but to me, his low price tag makes it possible for him to get to value. He did almost get to four times value against an Arizona team that is also a tough matchup on paper for big men, so I definitely think that there is a chance that he does it. Now, the other two guys for Princeton that we got to mention are Blake Peters and Zach Martini. They're the other two guys that are seeing any kind of noteworthy minutes. I think both have a little bit of upside because of how cheap they are, but the problem is is that neither really do a whole lot in terms of peripheral stats. They're kind of just there to score, and they're really just kind of there to shoot threes. So what you would need for one of these guys is you're going to need a hot shooting night to hit value, which we did get from Blake Peters against Missouri the last game they played. So I think Peters might come in with a decent amount of ownership, but like I said, you're going to need a hot shooting night from either Blake Peters or Zach Martini if you want them to catch value. 
All right, so now let's talk about Creighton. This is a team that we know by now. It's a team we've talked about on the podcast heavy all season long. They pretty much just play five guys. They're super starting five heavy. All of them are going to get usage. All of them are going to get minutes. All of them are in play any given night. All of them are also too expensive on DraftKings. Now, Francisco Farabello is the sixth man. He maybe plays enough minutes to be considered, but he's certainly not a safe play. He did have a good game against Baylor, but you know the guard position is kind of Baylor's weakness. So uh, it didn't totally shock me to see him having a good game. I definitely don't think there's any kind of safety in playing him. Now, what we can do with this Creighton starting five that's really balanced is we can try to figure out where the mismatches are on this Princeton team that maybe they might try to attack. So in their two games in the NCAA tournament so far, Azulis Tubelis of Arizona had a really good game, and DeAndre Golston of Missouri had a really good game. Both those guys led their teams in scoring against Princeton. So what you're seeing is a skilled, tall big man in Azulis Tubelis and an aggressive, athletic scoring guard in DeAndre Golston. Well, I kind of think Creighton has those guys. You know, they have Ryan Kalkbrenner, and they have Ryan Nemhard and Trey Alexander. So they definitely have guys who fit the profile of guys who have given this Princeton team some trouble. Kalkbrenner, to me, is really intriguing. He showed us a super high ceiling when he had 48 fantasy points against NC State. He is normally not the highest usage player for the Blue Jays, but he excels against smaller front courts, which is what I think you're going to see out of this Princeton team. So I definitely think that Ryan Kalkbrenner has a lot of upside. Now, Ryan Nemhard and Trey Alexander both have some upside as well. So Ryan Nemhard dropped his career high against Baylor, and he had 41 fantasy points, which would incline any normal thinking person to think that, oh, if Nemhard's production is going up and Trey Alexander's is backcourt mate, Alexander's was probably going down, right? Nope. Alexander still had 35 fantasy points in that game against Baylor. So they're both absolutely in play, in my opinion. Alexander normally possesses a higher usage rate and shot rate than Nemhard, but Nemhard normally gets more assists. So I really do think that they are both in play in this game. If you need to break the tie, Princeton's defense is actually 28th in the nation in assist rate, meaning they don't give up a whole lot. So if you're going to be relying on assists to get you your value, that's probably not the best idea against this Princeton team. So I might give a slight nod to Trey Alexander. Plus, I tend to think that after that last game, Nemhart's going to come in with more ownership. And so if we're getting equal plays with you know, slanted ownership, I'm going to slant the other way. So um, me personally, my tiebreaker is going to go to Alexander. But like I said, they're both in play. Now, Baylor Sharman is another guy for uh, Creighton that is worth talking about. He's been quiet lately, though. He's only hit four times value in three of his last 11 games, but we know that he has a huge ceiling, particularly when he gets double-doubles. And we know that Pitt, or Princeton, why did I call him Pitt? Princeton doesn't really contest offensive rebounds, so Baylor Sharman's going to be able to pull down a lot of defensive rebounds. But the counter-argument, though, is that all of Bayer Sharman's best games and most of his double-doubles come in games where the total gets really high. Like, I'm talking 150s, 160s, and even the 170s. You know, he has his best games when the total really gets up and he's able to get a lot of possessions to get a lot of rebounds and a lot of assists. I don't think this is going to be one of those games. But, like I said, Princeton, not a team that gets a lot of offensive boards, which means that Baylor Shireman's going to have potential to get a lot of defensive boards. Arthur Kaluma is the last guy for Creighton we're talking about. He's likely going to have to guard Tosana Wuma on the other end, which will give him instantly a lot of opportunities like we talked about with the whole Omir and Miller situation. But his usage rate is very inconsistent, and he doesn't really take a whole lot of shots, which kind of caps his ceiling. I think he kind of has the lowest ceiling out of any of the Creighton starting five, which means that because I said that, he's going to go out and drop like 60 fantasy points. <laughs> like just because I said that, but I don't think that's a likely outcome. Um, I definitely think that statistically speaking, he has the lowest ceiling out of any of the Creighton starting five.
All right, the game of the night, in my opinion, mine, unbiased Texas fan opinion, is Xavier versus Texas. Ken Palm has it as Texas 78 to 75, which is the highest total of the night. Both of these teams are in the top 100 in adjusted tempo on Ken Palm's, the only game of the night that can say so. Xavier is also not a great defensive team. They're 62nd in the nation in defensive efficiency, and they give up a ton of assists. Texas, meanwhile, is 10th in the nation in defense efficiency, and their relative weakness is in giving up offensive rebounds. So we got to try to find somebody on this Xavier team that can maybe take advantage of that weakness. Now, let's start at the top of the board. Colby Jones finally had a ceiling game for the first time in forever on Sunday. Well, I say forever, but it really wasn't actually forever. It was his first four times value game in his last seven, even though he had been close to it multiple times. Um, he just doesn't really get to his ceiling a whole lot. And that ceiling that he showed on Sunday was almost a five times value game against Pitt. The interesting part is he only took nine shots that entire game, but he got to that incredible fantasy point total because of 14 rebounds and seven assists, which were season highs in both categories. I tend to think that that's not exactly sustainable, even though the shot number you could definitely end up seeing higher. All right, now we got to talk about Jack Nungy. So Jack Nungy has a lot of upside as the guy who can take advantage of that Texas offensive rebounding. He has an offensive rebound rate of about 11%, which is pretty solid. It's definitely somebody that could get you some offensive boards to take advantage of that weakness. He's also been right around four times value uh, in two of his last five games. Now, what we do like to see is he had 32% usage rate against Pitt. So that would incline me to believe that like he had a ceiling game against Pitt, right? Nope, because um, he only grabbed three rebounds, which was incredible. I, I don't like. I watched that game. I, I don't remember Jack Nungy only having three rebounds. Like it just, it's, it's not something that you think about while you're watching it. Like you just assume that the center gets the boards. But I guess now in hindsight, you know, re, replaying it in my mind, Kobe Jones was getting every rebound. You know, he had fourteen. So, you know, I don't know why Jack Nungy didn't get any boards against Pitt, but it just didn't happen. He also only played 24 minutes because he was dealing with foul trouble the whole game, which could be a problem again because he does do it a few times this season. So, I mean, you're looking at a guy with Jack Nungy that with that usage rate and with the rebounding ability gives you a ton of upside. But he also gives you a little bit of risk because of foul trouble and because there's games where he randomly doesn't rebound the ball, like the one against Pitt. So I definitely think he's a solid play, but just be warned, it's certainly not a safe play. Now, Suitley Boom uh, shot terribly from the field against Pitt. He was 3 for 14, which would lend any reasonable person to believe that he had a terrible fantasy performance, right? Wrong. He still got to four times value in that game because he had seven rebounds and five assists. Yeah, Suitley Boom, the point guard, who's, I believe, 6'1", out-rebounded Jack Nungy, the seven-footer, by four. Yeah, so that was Xavier on Sunday. Now, let's also talk about another Xavier guy who had a huge day on Sunday, Adam Kunkel. And he was a guy that, like, instantly you're watching that game and you're like, holy crap, this guy's going to be in the optimal lineup because he was coming in decently low-owned, very reasonable price tag, huge performance, right? And that performance against Pitt was pretty impressive. He, he really shot the ball well. But I don't think that Texas is the best matchup for a guy like Adam Kunkel. Texas is very good at defending three, and they don't allow a whole lot of three-point attempts to begin with. Catch-and-shoot players such as Grady Dick and Andrew Funk recently in the last three games against Texas have not hit four times value against them. So I kind of think that Adam Kunkel is a fade for that reason. Although we always you know, tend to make this argument, do you trust riding the hot hand or do you trust the season-long 
additional metrics with the bigger sample size. If you want to ride the hot hand, their hot hand is Adam Kunkel and keep going to him. But I'm going to trust the season long metrics. He probably won't be in a lot of my lineups. Jerome Hunter of Xavier is another guy who is looking at back-to-back four times value games, uh, and he's another guy who could hurt Texas on the boards. Like Jack Nunji, he also has an 11% offensive rebounding rate. Um, last guy really worth mentioning is Desmond Claude for Xavier. He's pretty much the only bench guy that gets minutes for them, and I think he has a good chance to get to four times value as a value play. He's done it in three of his last four games. He doesn't have a big enough usage rate that it's like you know him being the guy that's going to win you a million dollars in a GPP. Like he doesn't have like six or seven times value games on the game log. Um, he just doesn't get that many shots or rebounds. But you're looking at a guy who is going to play some minutes, is going to be out there in the best game environment of the night, and is going to give you a really good chance to get to four times value. Last guy for Xavier, punt play alert. Um, it is Cesare Edwards. Um, he's a risky punt play. He has games where he doesn't do a whole lot of anything. But if Jack Nungy were to get in foul trouble, that's the guy that's going to be getting his minutes. So um, if you're really into a super punt play, you got Cesare Edwards. All right, now let's talk about the Texas Longhorns. So um, there were some people who thought I was kind of wild for recommending Dylan to sue against Penn State. And that was because of how low minutes DeSue normally plays, right? But to me... That wasn't like a minutes-based thing. He was going to get there no matter how many minutes he played because that was a mismatch thing. Penn State plays no size. They basically play a small forward at center. And so naturally, when a guy like Dylan DeSue comes there, a guy who can take advantage of that size mismatch, he's going to have a big game. And Dylan DeSue's done this recently. He has been on a tear recently. He's at over 29 fantasy points in each of his last five games. Now, in this game, he's not going to have the size advantage um, against Jack Nungy that he did against Penn State. But he is a little more athletic than Jack Nudgy. And I do think he can take advantage of that. So if you've watched the Texas games recently, specifically against Kansas and against Penn State, they do a lot of ball screens with Marcus Carr handling the ball and Dylan DeSue as the role guy. Their chemistry is really good. If you try to hedge or to trap and try to take it out of Marcus Carr's hands, Dylan DeSue is really skilled at the short roll where he catches the ball about level with the free throw line. And he's got a really smooth big man floater that seems to always go in. Like, I know I'm probably jinxing this. I really need to find some wood to knock on. But he has this big man floater that it feels like it always goes in when they hit him on this short roll. Uh, and it's just really tough to defend for defenses, right? Because that's the space where you don't have anybody is right that space right there in the middle of the floor. So I really actually do think there's a lot of upside. I think Texas is going to want to make Jack Nungy get involved in defending those ball screens. And they're going to use Dylan DeSue as a part of their offense big time. Now, speaking of Marcus Carr, we haven't had a ceiling Marcus Carr game in a long time. In fact, he hasn't had a four times value game in his last nine, which would lead any reasonable person to be like, why would I ever play that guy, right? Well, it's because he's still seeing a high usage rate. It's been over 19% each of his last five games. Xavier gives up a high assist rate, which could help him out a lot. Um, and he's the guy that's going to have the ball in his hands down the stretch in a game that may or may not be close. And you look at a situation like that where three minutes left in the game, you get eight straight Marcus Carr possessions where it's either a bucket or an assist, and that fancy point total is going to skyrocket really quickly. So I definitely think there's some upside with Marcus Carr. I don't think he's going to come in with a lot of ownership because of the recent string of not-so-great performances. And if that scares you away, hey, I totally get it. Like, I'm not one to fault that. But I'm just saying, if there were a situation for a Marcus Carr ceiling game, it would be this one. Serge Barry Rice has been great for Texas this season. Like, just absolutely fantastic. Great energy guy. Does a lot of really good things. Every analyst of every Texas game has pointed out that he has the best shot fake in college basketball. So if you watch this game, I about guarantee you're going to hear that by about 
two minutes after he checks in. Um, but he also, in DFS fields, he gives us a massive usage rate. In the last 10 games, it's been really big. Um, but the problem is with him is that he goes as his jump shot goes. When his jump shot is falling, he can give you these huge fancy performances because that opens up the rest of his game with the shot fake, which gives you opportunities for more points and assists. He's also a pretty good rebounder for a guard. Um, so you do get some upside there. And I think Xavier's a pretty good matchup for a guy who's trying to find his jump shot. They are 270th in the nation at opposing three-point percentage, meaning that there's only about 90 teams in the nation that you know, teams shoot better against than Xavier. So I definitely think there's a chance that it is a good shooting night for Serge Barry Rice against this Xavier defense. Now, Timmy Allen had a four times value game against Penn State um, without even scoring in double digit points. Uh, he will be matched up pretty much with Colby Jones at the three, which does bring in some foul trouble risk, but I definitely don't think it's a bad matchup for him. He's kind of a really skilled, crafty footwork guy. He doesn't really need an athleticism advantage to score. Tyrese Hunter is always cheap and always chalky, and he gets his fancy production off of three-pointers and assists. And against a Xavier team that gives up a lot of three-pointers and gives up a lot of assists, he's going to be chalky, and he's going to be a you know, fairly popular play again. Um, but I definitely think there is some upside with Tyrese Hunter. He's a guy that people love to click because they remember him at Iowa State. They've seen the ceiling games when they were on national TV, like the one against Gonzaga earlier in the year, and they know that that's a possibility. And so they're not afraid to click it for Tyrese Hunter, knowing that he has that legitimate upside. Now, if you're looking to fade Dylan DeSue, Christian Bishop is a guy that you can do that with. Um, he's smaller than Christian or smaller than Dylan DeSue. Um, he's not quite the pick and roll prowess that DeSue is. But the minutes that DeSue's not out there, they're going to be played by Christian Bishop. So if you're going to full fade DeSue, you might as well play the guy that's going to be seeing those minutes. Now, the other two guys for Texas that we got to mention are Brock Cunningham and Dylan Mitchell. They're both going to see some minutes, but it's honestly super tough to figure out when either one will see any kind of boosted minutes or boosted production. Uh, they're just kind of hard to figure out, but they are going to be out there on the floor. If you were looking for a punt play, those would be two guys that you could legitimately do it with. All right, that does it for the last game of Friday night, the last game of the Sweet 16. And so that is going to conclude this here podcast episode. So if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review. It really helps me out a lot. Also, hit that subscribe button. You'll be notified when new episodes drop. We will be back tomorrow night recording, talking about the Elite Eight Saturday slate. And we will be back Saturday night recording, talking about the Elite Eight Sunday slate. So um, make sure you subscribe so that we'll be notified when those new episodes drop. You can give those a listen before locking in your lineups. All right, so that does it for this one, guys. Um, as always, best of luck to you in all your DFS endeavors. Me personally, and I'm hoping that I have a better night tomorrow night than I did tonight. Hoping I can avoid those landmines. Um, and so of all the guys that I mentioned, let's see if we can do it, right? Do it, avoid those guys that just give you nothing for their salary. So anyway, I I'm rambling. Let's go ahead and end it there. Thank you guys for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.